0: You remember when uh, Bernie Madoff was arrested for defrauding millions and millions from, uh, from all his clients, his so-called clients, in, a, in an alleged Ponzi scheme where he was ripping off from one and uh, putting money into another thing and uh, it was all smoke and mirrors. Uh, do you remember when he got arrested for that Uh, You know, he looked as shocked as anybody that he finally got caught. Uh, You know, the the, the smartest guys never think they're going to get caught. Uh, But he got caught. And when he did get caught, the judge set the bail at $10 million. It's one of the highest bail amounts that was ever set for any criminal defendant. And at that point, Madoff had three choices. Uh, One thing that he could have done was stayed in jail till trial. Uh, I'm sure they gave him very nice accommodations, he would have done just fine. But he didn't want to do that, so another option that he had in front of him was uh, he could pay cash. He could have paid the $10 million in cash. And, and since he had it, because he stole it, uh, he had plenty of money available. So he that's what he did. He paid the $10 million in cash and he got himself out of jail. But let's say he was just an ordinary Joe like you and me and he didn't have $10 million in cash. Well, in that case, he could have contracted a bail bondsman to pay his bail for him. So a bail arrangement is, is a contract between uh, the bail bondsman and the court. And the bail bondsman says to the court, I will guarantee that this man shows up for trial, and if he doesn't, then I will pay the full amount of the bail. Now, why would a bail bondsman enter into a contract like that with defendants who mostly are untrustworthy, uh, and not generally people of high character? Well. Uh, they pay it because they have uh, contracted for a fee. So in Bernie Madoff's case, it would have cost him a million dollars, 10% of the bail uh, in order for the bail bondsman to post that bond for him. So it can be lucrative to be a bail bondsman if the guys show up for trial. So based on the bail bondsman's guarantee, then the court would have released Bernie Madoff and uh, waited for him to come till trial. Now, if Madoff showed for trial, everything would have been fine. But let's say that Bernie Madoff fled. What if he ran? What if he used his means and resources and just took off? Uh, And so if that would have happened, then the bail bondsman is on the hook for the $10 million, the full thing, right? And so he would have done everything he can, desperately trying to find Madoff and bring him to court to face justice. But you know, no bond agent, no bail bondsman can ever guarantee that a defendant is going to appear for trial. You know, defendants are, especially when they're rich and they're shady like Madoff was, they have the means and they have the motive to take off. And in fact, the court ended up revoking Bernie Madoff's uh, bail for that very reason. You know, he's got the means, he's got the motive, he's clearly guilty, he could fly. And so the court ended up revoking his bail because of that. So uh, when Madoff, was his, when his bail was revoked, uh, he had to go into jail and, and wait there for his trial. And the courts deny bail sometimes because these defendants, uh, particularly guys like Madoff, are likely uh, to flee. Uh, so he's guilty, he wants to flee, uh, and the bail bondsman would want to find him, but he's got the means to hide, so maybe he wouldn't find him. And that's, that's why uh, our court system is a very very often an imperfect system I just want to compare that to to a different kind of system, and that is the system of how God saves us. Uh, Before we were saved, our relationship with with God was that we were enemies of God. We were criminals in God's eyes. We We were due to be brought to his court, and we were due to face a trial at which we would have been found guilty and at which we would have been sentenced to eternity in hell. That's what we would have had happen to us, but then when we became believers, God sealed us with his Holy Spirit for all eternity, and now Jesus guarantees that we can never be lost or slip through his hands as a criminal might slip through the hands of a bail bondsman and try to escape uh, to somewhere where he can't face justice. Uh, there's no risk that we can ever be lost, as though there is risk with a guy like Madoff or somebody like that. Well, how do we know that there's no risk? How do we know that we can't slip through Jesus' hands? Well, we know because Jesus always does the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that Jesus lose none of those whom God has given to him, but raise it up on the last day. And we'll look at that from John chapter 6, verses 38 to 40 today. So Jesus guarantees that he will deliver us safely into the Father's hands. And so today, we'll be talking about the eternal security of the believer. And I think at Christmas, uh, that's something that gives me tremendous hope, that I cannot lose my salvation, and that now that I have it, I can never lose it, and my life is just a one long continuum uh, where one day I will close my eyes, but I will wake up in the presence of the Lord, and my salvation uh, will continue on for all eternity. Well, that gives me great hope. Now, last year, I called our Advent series, The Reasons Jesus Said He Came and I tied four specific reasons that Jesus said he came to the Advent themes of uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. And so uh, this year I'm calling our Advent series more reasons Jesus said he came because I'm real creative like that. Uh, so catchy, catchy title for this year's theme. Uh, so I just want us to take a deeper look, uh, e- even a deeper dive into the incarnation Uh, and and just think about what that means for us. Incarnation is from the Latin word incarnatus, which means took on flesh, Uh, Jesus took on human flesh. So what is the significance of that? And what reasons did Jesus give for why he came to the earth? And so uh, we're just gonna do a quick review of the reasons that we talked about last year, uh, so that we're prepared, so that our brains are ready for this year's reasons. Last year, uh, in week one, our theme was hope, and we looked at the story of Zacchaeus in uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Remember, Zacchaeus was a a, a Jewish tax collector. He collected taxes uh, from the Jews and paid them to the Romans. And he was hated for that alone because they deemed him a traitor. But on top of that, uh, these tax collectors were famous for skimming off the top and getting rich off the backs of the people they collected taxes from. So the Jews hated him. Uh, But Zacchaeus repented when Jesus came to his house. And he promised Jesus that if he had defrauded anybody, he would pay them back four times as much as he had taken And Jesus rejoiced and said, today salvation has come to the house because he too is a child of Abraham. And so Zacchaeus uh, had new hope from Jesus. And the reason Jesus said he came in the Zacchaeus story is that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So that was our theme of hope. And then peace was the theme of the second week when we talked about Mark 10:45. Jesus said, "I came not to to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many." Uh, so Jesus did not come with a haughty attitude uh, as one who who demanded people fall down at his feet and and give service to him. Uh, although by all rights he could have, being being God himself in the flesh, uh, he did not demand to be served like like the gods of the pagans of Jesus' day who demanded uh, to be served night and day. Uh, Jesus came to serve others, and in the greatest act of service ever done, uh, he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so when we have an attitude of, of service rather than supremacy and superiority, we have peace with God, we have peace with each other, and we even have peace with ourselves. In week three, our theme was joy. Uh, In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. And I said last year, a synonym for abundant life is joy. Uh, So we talked about uh, what it meant to have life, not just life after death, but eternal life today, beginning today, uh, that we have eternal life as soon as we are saved while we're on this earth, and no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens to us on this earth, uh, we have the everlasting joy of knowing that we are God's children, and that joy is meant to be so attractive uh, that other people will see it in us, and they'll want to know what it is that makes us so joyful, and they'll ask us, uh, what is it that makes you joyful, and what do you have that I don't, and that's our opportunity to talk about Jesus, and that's joy. And then the last week of the series was about love. Uh, Jesus gave another reason in John 12, 27 for why he came. He said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So this purpose and this hour is another reason Jesus said he came. The reason he came was to die on a cross. In the most extreme act of love ever shown, God himself uh, took the nails in our place, allowed himself to be killed by his enemies, dying an excruciating death on the cross to redeem us from the penalty of our sins. Jesus said he came for this hour, for this purpose, which was to die on a cross, glorifying God and saving us from our sins. And then... Last year, in the week between Christmas and New Year's, I kind of flew over seven more reasons why Jesus said he came, Uh, and by now, you know that I'm not really much of a flyover guy. Uh, I like to dive deep, so what I did was I took uh, four of those reasons of the seven that we looked at last year in that that middle week, and we're going to look at those uh, during this uh, Advent season, so I just want us to marvel at Jesus and what he did and why he said he came uh, over this Advent season as we prepare Our hearts for Christmas. So this week's sermon is from John chapter 6, and another reason that Jesus said he came was to do the will of him who sent me, to do the will of the Father. And so we'll look at that reason today, and we're going to tie uh, this reason to our Advent theme of hope. So uh, let's talk first about the incarnation, and this is uh, from the passage uh, in John, verses six, uh, chapter six, verses thirty-eight to forty. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will who sent me, of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, before we get to the, to the statement, to the purpose statement of why Jesus came, perhaps the most staggering truth claim of all is, I came down from heaven, right? Who of us can say that? I came down from heaven. That is a staggering statement. It's a, it's a clear statement of his uh, deity and his eternality. Uh, that he would choose to leave heaven, uh, to leave God's side and, and come down to sinful earth uh, and dwell among us is truly a, a shocking statement. And so to, to really grasp uh, why it's such a shocking statement, I just want us to think about the overall context of this whole bread of life discourse that we see in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 begins with the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Uh, Many came, uh, and there was no food, and and Jesus managed to feed them all. And then he sent his disciples across the lake, but Jesus remained to pray. Uh, And then Jesus came to them, walking on the water at night. Now, the next morning, uh, the Jews knew that Jesus hadn't gotten on the boat with the disciples, and he's on a different part of the lake now. And so they ask him, how did you get here, Rabbi? How did you get here? And Jesus, in his typical way of not answering their question, uh, but probing into their very souls, uh, getting them to examine their own hearts, uh, Jesus asked his own question and and gave his own uh, assessment of them. Uh, He said to them uh, in John 6, 26 to 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. So the Jews received this, and seemingly they were curious and and not uh, malicious towards him. They wanted to know uh, how they could receive uh, this. How could they do the works of God? And so Jesus said, believe on the Son. Believe on the one whom God has sent. And so here's where they go wrong. They ask Jesus for a sign as though the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't enough of a sign, right? He fed 5,000 people from nothing. So uh, that ought to have been enough. But they wanted a sign like Moses gave, right? Uh, Moses brought the manna down from heaven. Uh, And so Jesus said, guys, it wasn't Moses who brought the manna down from heaven, right? It was God who brought the manna down from heaven. Your hope is misplaced. And so Jesus says then in verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life, to the world. Now the Jews at this point thought he was still talking about manna, right? Uh, but Jesus had changed the subject on them. He was talking about himself. Uh, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. And so now they think he's talking about physical hunger, physical thirst. And Jesus is saying, No, I'm not talking about that anymore, guys. I'm talking about your spiritual needs that I can satisfy for all eternity if you will only believe. You see, they were fixated on, on Moses and manna and Jesus was trying to say to them, God sent me just like God sent the manna Believe in me and you will have eternal life. So Jesus was talking about his incarnation uh, and it's what we celebrate at Christmas. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity uh, who took on human flesh, born of a virgin, became a helpless baby. And there is no other person, there is no other religion who has ever claimed such a thing. That's why this is so absolutely shocking. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, it's no wonder that his listeners often thought him insane, right? His, his family went to take hold of him at one point in time. Later in John chapter 6, almost everybody leaves him because his claims are so outrageous in their minds. And so uh, they thought him insane. So why did Jesus do miracles? Well, he did miracles to prove the authenticity of his claims, to prove that he was who he said he was. Uh, and so he was the Messiah he claimed, down to, uh, he claimed to be just as the Bible predicted. They should have been waiting for somebody like him because of passages like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. And then 9, six Isaiah 9.6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. God became a man. Why? Well, that's what we're talking about in this series, the reasons Jesus gave, the reasons he said that he came. And so the driving point behind today's passage and today's Advent theme is this this theme of eternal security, the eternal security of the believer through faith in Jesus. All right, so the incarnation, Jesus has come. Why has Jesus come? According to this passage, it is to do God's will, to do the will of the Father. Now, Jesus said he always does the will of the Father. He said the reason he came was not to do his own will, but to do his Father's will. And we see this throughout the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John. In John 5, 19, uh, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And in John five thirty, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus always did the Father's will. Now, that is not to say that Jesus and God had, had conflicting wills. Uh, they had the same will. Together, they planned from all eternity how this plan of salvation was going to happen. And so uh, when we think about that, we're thinking about before the world was created, God and Jesus working out the plan. How is this going to happen? And so this brings us to the the topic of the Trinity, right? And, And our small minds, I just don't think we can ever possibly grasp the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each God, and yet there is only one God, uh, we say three in person and one in essence. That is a mind-blowing concept, the concept of the Trinity. And who can understand what the- theologians refer to as the hypostatic union, right? God is, or Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% man. Uh, you know, for us, the math doesn't work, right? That's 200%. But somehow, biblically, the Bible teaches God is, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and the Bible teaches these truths, uh, and even though they may be beyond human comprehension, that does not make them any less true, uh, because God says they are true. So, Jesus and God have the same will. Uh, And Jesus said He came to do the will of the Father, and He said specifically in this passage what the will of the Father is. And here we'll talk about the eternal security of the believer. So so what is God's will? In John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, uh, Jesus said the will of God is that of all He has given me, I lose nothing. So we learn from this passage. That God has given to Jesus uh, certain people uh, who are called the elect. Uh, And God's will is that Jesus lose none of the elect. Uh, And so before the world began, God chose who are going to be his. uh, And they will come to Jesus. Now, wait a minute. They will come to Jesus? How will they come to Jesus? Well, on the one hand, God draws them. And on the other hand, they must come. And so we have this, again, sovereignty versus human responsibility. We are responsible to come. Uh, This does not eliminate human responsibility. We must put our faith in Jesus. In fact, in the verse that precedes our passage today, John 6, 37, Jesus says, all who come to me, I will not cast out. So you see this human volition on that one hand. And so I've heard it illustrated, maybe you've heard this as well, uh, as a doorway. And as you approach the doorway, above the doorpost is a sign that says, all who will come. And then as you walk through the doorway and you turn back around and you look at the doorway you've just passed, it says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. And I think that's an incredible way to illustrate uh, this human responsibility and God's sovereignty at the same time. So they are both scriptural truths. uh, And another thing that we can't quite reconcile in our own minds, but that does not make them any less true. Uh, Once we come, It is god's will that jesus lose nothing those whom the father chooses simply cannot be lost god's will and god's power guarantees our salvation and our security and so does jesus's power because he always does the will of the father and so god chooses us god draws us to himself we believe uh, and God preserves us in the faith so that we will persevere and we will believe until the end. And Jesus will lose none of these who come. I think probably my favorite passage on the eternal security of the believers is from John chapter 10, uh, verses 27 to 30, uh, where Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. That's amazing. Uh, first, that he says, I and the Father are one, right? That's a, a claim that the Jews who he was talking to could not have missed. But the fact that no one can snatch us out of his hand uh, once we are believers. Those whom God have ch- has chosen, who have placed their faith in him, uh, Jesus will not, cannot lose. He will keep us and he will protect us. So, so he will never lose them. But, but for what purpose? What is he going to do with us now that, that we are his? Well, Jesus also said, that the will of God that he came to accomplish is that Jesus raise it up on the last day. I will raise it up on the last day. Well, what is it? What does that mean? Well, the it is the collective body of all the saints who have ever believed uh, that, uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, these are the ones who God has elected who will come to Jesus or who have come to Jesus. And Jesus will not lose a single one of these, but will raise it up on the last day. That means raise us all up to heaven. And Jesus didn't just say that in this particular verse, three more times in John chapter six, he says the exact same thing in verses 40, verse 44, and verse 54, he says, I will raise it up, this collective body of believers on the last day. Uh, Jesus said he would not suffer any loss, not one single loss, but he would raise it all up on the last day to everlasting life. And so this is the great hope that Christians have, that our salvation is absolutely secure and this last day is the day when Jesus returns, rewarding his believers and judging unbelievers. He will raise us up to heaven, and those who do not believe, he will judge. So our hope at Christmas is, is much more than the 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 jesus in the manger story right jesus became a baby yes he became a baby and that's that's incredible and and that is what we celebrate uh he lived he died and was resurrected and those are all scriptural truths too and we celebrate those as well Uh, but our hope is that the first coming means that there will be a second coming right and then we eagerly await jesus's second coming Uh, for us uh, he could return at any moment and fulfill all these promises So uh, Jesus is coming, Uh, he will lose none whom God has given and he will raise uh, those up whom he has, uh, whom God has also chosen. And then lastly, Jesus said uh, that the will of of God is that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So this is a little bit of a repeat of what he said before, but this time the emphasis, the stress is on belief. Uh, John often um, often puts seeing and believing together in his gospel. Uh, Blessed are those who see and believe. And so that's what we have here. Uh, the one who beholds the Son, the one who sees the Son and believes in him, he will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is this concept of belief? What does it mean to believe? Well, to believe means that we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we can do nothing to save ourselves, that we have nothing in ourselves that is worthy of salvation, and that we uh, trust in Jesus for our salvation. We ask him to forgive our sins. We put our faith in him, and we ask him to save us. And the moment we do that, we have eternal life in heaven. In fact, John 17, 3 says, uh, talking about what eternal life is, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. So do you know God and Jesus Christ, whom he he has sent? Well, then you have have eternal life today, right? Eternal life is not something we're going to wait for after we die. We have it today. We're living this eternal life already. And so Jesus is the only way that we can have that eternal life. He's the only way to the Father. Uh, We don't get it by being a good person, by trying to keep the law, uh, by trying to keep sacraments. There's no way we can have it except to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when I think of these promises of the eternal security of the believer, more personally, my eternal security, my own eternal security, your own eternal security, Uh, I'm drawn to the majestic ending of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is some of the most incredible prose that has ever been written. Uh, And every time I read it, uh, it gives me chills and nearly brings me to tears. And and there, in in that section, Paul talked about three potential obstacles uh, to our eternal salvation, to our eternal security, uh, after we've believed in Jesus Christ. And the first one he mentioned is sin. Won't sin separate us from the love of Christ? Paul said in Romans 8, 32 to 34, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered, us up for, or delivered him over for us all, how will he also, not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So Satan is going to accuse us of sin, right? He will accuse us of sin. That's what he does. The word, very word Satan means accuser. So he will accuse us of sin. And you know what? He's right. We are sinners. We have sinned. We will sin again. But Christ, by his atoning death on the cross, has saved us from the penalty of our sin with his precious blood. And God punished Jesus for our sins so he wouldn't have to punish us if we believe in him. So God punished him. He took the penalty that we deserve. And when God looks at us, he sees us protected by the blood of Jesus Christ and not covered by the stain of our own sin. So no, our sin cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Well, what about physical suffering? What about physical suffering? So many people refuse to believe in God because they suffer physically and they, they think, well, you know, maybe God has forsaken me. Uh, why would God allow cancer or starvation, child abuse, slavery, uh, and whatever it is that we happen to be going through at, the, at, our, at this given moment? Well, Paul said, neither tribulation nor distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, tribulation is just a part of living in this world, right? This should not be a surprise to us. Uh, Jesus said himself in John 16, 33, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So tribulation does not mean that God has forsaken us, that he's forgotten us, or that we've somehow become separated from him. Uh, Tribulation is sometimes the means that God uses to make us more like Jesus Christ. Because as we suffer, as we persevere, we learn that God is faithful uh, and that he brings us through that tribulation so that we'll be stronger to face the next one. And we become more like Christ. And so there is a purpose in our suffering. It makes us more like Jesus. Other times, Uh, tribulation is discipline. Uh, God disciplines us if we have backslidden from him, if we're engaged in some sin uh, that has become habitual and God uh, would not be happy about that. So God has tools in his toolbox to discipline us. And Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves like a son. Now, Many of you have sons. Uh, You love your sons, right? You don't hate your sons. You don't discipline them because you hate them. You discipline them because you love them. And that's what God does with us. So tribulation is not proof that God has abandoned us. It's proof that he's accepted us into his family as his children and that he loves us. So no, physical suffering cannot separate us from the love of God either. Well, what about the existence of principalities and powers and other things in the spiritual world? uh, Paul said in Romans 8, 38 to 39, nothing, for I am convinced that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's pretty much a catch-all, right? There is nothing, nothing, you name it. It cannot separate us from the love of God. And yet some people still object to the doctrine of eternal security, which to me, I don't understand why they would want to object to it. Uh, but they say, uh, for example, I have known people who have professed faith, and now they no longer profess faith. Haven't they lost their salvation? Well, no. Uh, 1 John chapter uh, 2, verse 19 is clear that that person never truly was saved. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so it would be evident that they are not all of us, So they never had their salvation. It's not like they had it and lost it. They never once had it. Others may say, well, that person claims to be a Christian, but boy, they live like heathens. So that person surely has lost their salvation, right? Well, again, most likely that person never had their salvation uh, because as 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And this is what we've learned about in Romans chapter six, right? Shall we shall we continue in sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, May it never be, right? Uh, we have a new uh, we have a, we, we are new creature new creatures, new creations, according to 2 Corinthians 5. So no, we should not keep sinning. We should live the way God wants us to live. Others may say, thinking about themselves, you know. I understand what you're saying about eternal security, but but my faith doesn't feel very strong. My, My faith feels really weak sometimes. So how can I know that I won't lose it? Well, we can know because it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith that guarantees it. Because neither obtaining our salvation or keeping our salvation is our work. That's not our work. It depends on the power of God who is strong enough to to save us and to keep us. Uh, And so a true believer can never lose their salvation. As John MacArthur has famously said, if we could lose our salvation, we would, right? And we would because we sin and we would lose it if we could. So this is the hope that we have at Christmas, brothers and sisters. Uh, Jesus Christ has come in 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 the form of a helpless babe. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for our sins. And when we believe, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. So Jesus came down from heaven. He became a baby. Why? To do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? That of all that God has given him, he lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So, what does this mean for us today? How can we apply these amazing truths to our life? The first thing I would say is that eternal security is a fact, not a feeling. You know, I have, I have a friend who talks to me about theological things uh, fairly regularly, and, and he says to me all the time, I know the Bible says I'm saved and that my salvation is secure, but I just don't feel it. And I always say to him, salvation is a fact, not a feeling. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead? Yes, I believe that. Uh, Do you know that there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation or to keep your salvation, that it's all God's work? Do you believe that? Yes, yes, I believe that. Do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Yes, yes, I believe that. Well, if you believe these things, your salvation is secure, whether you feel it or not. It is a fact. It's not a feeling, which brings us to the second point. Eternal security is by God's power and not our power. Our faith is weak occasionally, right? John the Baptist languished in prison, and his faith wavered a little bit while he was there. Uh, our, if salvation and security depended on the strength of our faith, we'd have no chance to keep it. But Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Whose work is it? He who began a good work in you. The work of salvation, the work of preserving it, the work of completing it are all God's work, not ours. And that's why we can trust it. We could not preserve our salvation, but God can. And then the last thing is that eternal security means that we can stop striving and worrying and we can start living. You know, Martin Luther used to confess his sins to his confessor night and day, day and night, night and day, wearing out his confessor with the most menial and trivial of sins, waking this guy up and saying, I got to confess this thing to you until this guy was half out of his mind with Martin Luther saying, what are you doing? Why are you confessing this to me night and day, day and night like you are? Well, his fear was that if he died with even the most minor sin, unconfessed, that he would perish eternally. That was his fear. And so he was confessing. As he was breathing, he was confessing. But that was before he understood grace. He didn't understand grace. Grace means that God has bestowed his favor on us because of our faith in Jesus Christ, even though we don't deserve it, even though we couldn't earn it, simply because God loves us and has called us to believe the gospel that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and rose from the dead. Once Luther understood grace, that Jesus paid it all, and that we can't contribute anything to our salvation, and we can't lose it, then Luther finally was able to say, I understand the gospel. Now I can rest, and I can stop striving and just enjoy this peace and this security that only God can give. You know, the gift of hope that God gave us, Uh, On Christmas Day is his son. It's the greatest gift that the world has ever received. Jesus' work is so powerful and his work uh, on our behalf so complete that you and I will never even face trial, right? God has already declared us not guilty because of our faith in Jesus. Now, in the beginning, I was talking about a bail bondsman, right, and and his uh, desire to bring that defendant to court to face judgment. Uh, But a bail bondsman can't can't assure anybody's appearance before the court, and he certainly can't declare somebody not guilty, right? Uh, But Jesus can do both. He has already secured our verdict of not guilty, and he guarantees our appearance in heaven before the Lord. You know, today is November 27th, uh, and this is the anniversary. I didn't count how many anniversaries it's been, but in, on November 27th, 1095, uh, Pope Urban uh, declared that the first crusade should occur. And so he ordered up armies to to go back to Jerusalem uh, to fight against the Muslims and and to take back Jerusalem. And he proclaimed that anybody who did that and who died in service uh, to the Lord, he would absolve their sins and ensure that he uh, would get them to heaven. Now, I think Pope Urban had a little bit of a high estimation of himself, uh, since nobody uh, can guarantee that. But he had this creed that he used to say, and it was deus volt, which in Latin is, uh, it is God's will, it is God's will. And so he said, it's God's will. And I think that nobody can truly know God's will except for Jesus Christ, and nobody can really guarantee uh, that somebody will appear uh, and, and have absolution of their sins except for Jesus Christ. Uh, So only he can promise and guarantee eternal life. Because it is the Father's will that Jesus lose nothing but raise it up on the last day, Jesus will usher us directly into God's presence. It's guaranteed. So I want us to have that hope this Christmas season that no matter how hard our life happens to be right now, no matter what we happen to be going through, no matter what loss you may be grieving, our salvation is secure. It can never be lost, and Jesus will bring us home. Amen? Amen? Lord God, we thank you for these amazing truths. We thank you for John chapter 6, verses 38 to 40, and other passages in the New Testament that, that just so strongly guarantee that once we have been saved, that that salvation can never be lost, Lord, and you are powerful enough to bring us all the way home, despite the fact uh, that we are often rebellious sinners against you. And so, Lord, uh, we just thank you for these things. And as we think about the reasons you came on Christmas, Lord, this is a a really, really powerful reason that you came. And we're just so grateful for what you've done for us on our behalf, Lord, that you would leave heaven, take on human flesh, become a helpless baby, and subject yourself to the whims of sinful men uh, who tortured you, uh, put you on a cross, and killed you for our sins, Lord. And we know this was the Father's will, Lord, but you still had to agree to it. And so we are just so thankful for what you've done. And we pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.